So we're just winding up a, a series, actually, that started earlier this year. Don't worry if you haven't been to the other ones. It's called Setting a New Course, Practices for a New Year. And there were various talks about intention and <coughs> refuges and other themes that are inspiring for people who are developing practice or setting the intention to do more meditation this year. (coughs) And interestingly, I I wanted to include this topic tonight. We're going to talk about impermanence. Impermanence, the changeability of our experience and of the way our life is not constant and is continually in flux. And I wanted to include this in the realm of setting a new course because I don't think any of us need to have someone tell us at this point that change is ubiquitous in life. It's just we're always, something is always going on that we're dealing with or changing. And it's actually our relationship to that that determines our suffering or our freedom. In the back of our mind, sometimes we're secretly believing, if I just get this settled, then everything is going to be right, and I can keep it that way. But then before we get that thing settled, something else comes up, right? And there's always one more thing. So that that little belief in the back of our mind is not really correct. That's... That's a part of our mind that just wants everything to be the same. It's kind of a sweet desire, but not a very realistic one. More realistically, things are always in flux. Our job, our car, our house, our partner, our relationships, our health, our money. These things are always changing. And so we... We look at how we relate to that, how we dance with those changes in order to find the freedom that the Buddha was pointing at, the realistic freedom of living in this changing life. So this may be an opportunity to examine our relationship to change and find some new ways to to relate to it and associate it with it in this new year. It's almost March, is it really still the new year? Well, we'll pretend. <laughs> this series went to January and February. <coughs> now, interestingly, I, um, you know, I signed up and agreed to give this talk quite a while ago. And in the meantime, um, I was offered the opportunity just today to speak at a memorial. It's all about impermanence. Um, it lined up nicely. It, it wasn't a memorial for someone I knew. I was um, invited into an art gallery, actually, that was, in a way, celebrating, but at least commemorating a staff member who had died a year ago, about a year ago. And so it wasn't a fresh memorial. Um, but there were people who were still processing it because she had died quite young. And they felt that it would be interesting to have a meditation to go along with that. So I felt quite honored to participate in that and it really helped me reflect. That's right, all this change is going toward 
the big change. Um, and that informs our life too, doesn't it? And also the fact that the people around us are fragile and changing and may go away. And we know that intellectually, but it's always a shock, often a shock when it does happen. So we can fold that in too, to our understanding of the topic of impermanence. I've also undergone a fairly large change recently. I I moved from San Jose here to Santa Cruz. And that's that's been good in many ways and a few challenges. My new place is noisier than my other place. And as a meditator, I really value the silence. And so, uh, you know, there are things to work with, also opportunities. I could make it highly personal, all about me, you know, this is better, this is worse, I like this, I don't like that. There's always things we like and don't like. Or I could have a relationship more like, well, this is a change. People move all the time. (laughs) Things change all the time. It's a much bigger picture than just my situation. This is part of something much bigger. So how do I dance with that? The Buddha said that the ebb and flow of life is a great opportunity for insight. (laughs) So our habitual way of relating to our life is to make it a particular and personal story, but it's also an opportunity for expanding our understanding of the universal characteristics of human experience, of the flow of life. Once we're not caught in the me aspect of the changes in our life it's all about my thing then we can start to see this so the fact of impermanence is one of these universal characteristics it's going on in everybody's life even people whose lives seem very settled there's change happening for them too or there will be (laughs) even if it's not at this moment it comes and finds us doesn't it In fact, this looking at change and looking at the way things don't stay the same, they continually arise and pass and shift and change, that is actually something that the Buddha emphasized almost the most often and the most energetically in terms of how we can gain insight, how we can really develop wisdom. So it's good that we have so much of it. We have many, many opportunities for developing wisdom. It's really worth looking at. And it's a door to liberation. Change is a door to liberation from suffering. So we're going to look at that. I'm going to start actually with looking at it a little bit in the written discourses of the Buddha, the teachings that have survived over time. Even 2,600 years ago, people's lives were changing a lot. So the word, the ancient Indian word that's usually translated as impermanence is anicca. I'm just offering you a Pali lesson if you're interested. Anicca, if something is impermanent, that means it will end. And more generally, there's change or fluctuation. The Buddha tended to talk about this in terms of arising and passing, if you will. And just in our meditation, the arising and passing of the breath. 
we run into impassing of hearing of our thoughts, of body sensations. Was there anything that stayed the same in your whole meditation? This is the central insight. Now you could say, what is so special about that? Everybody knows that things change. You don't have to be a Buddhist (laughs) or study the teachings of the Buddha. If we go out on the street and ask the average person, do things change or not? I think they'll say they change. That's my guess. So what is, you know, what is so interesting and, and fruitful and important here? So let's look a little bit. I hope you'll bear with a number of examples here. So here's a, a verse from the Dhammapada. Better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one day lived seeing the arising and passing. So that's pretty strong advertisement. There's another um, teaching that develops this idea in a different way. It, um, it begins with an exposition of the quality of a material gift. So it's nominally about generosity, this particular sutta. And it talks about how the quality of a gift is affected by the state of mind of the giver and the attainment of the receiver. And then right at the end, kind of goes along, there's a lot about that. And then right at the end, it shifts. And it asserts that one's own mental cultivation is actually better than the most lavish material gift that we could give. You know, the most beautiful thing, amazing thing, all of our wealth, giving up our life for someone. All of that is taught by our own mental cultivation. And among the types of mental cultivation, he says, to develop the perception of impermanence for the time of a finger snap is the very highest. How about that? I was impressed to read that. So he says that this is the most important thing. Observing, arising, and passing away. There's also a sutta. This even happens in meditation instructions. So here's Another one, there's a sutta called the Sutta on Transcendental Dependent Origination. And you don't have to know what all that stands for. But essentially it's a description of how you start with noticing that there's suffering in your life and getting on the path and developing the mind and eventually realizing freedom. All because you noticed that there was difficulty. And... The Buddha says, the destruction of the taints, which means finding liberation. Finding liberation is for one who knows and sees, I say, not for one who does not know and does not see. Knowing what? Seeing what? Does complete liberation occur? Such is material form. Such is the arising of material form. Such is the passing away of material form. Such is feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, just like material form. For one who knows and sees this, complete liberation occurs. So that's kind of traditional language. But I'll just unpack it by saying, knowing what, seeing what, 
does freedom come? And then he says, such is material form, such is the arising, such is the passing away. So material form just refers to the body, physical things in the world. It's nothing obscure. We, we, we deal with material form every day. And so he says, notice what it is. Huh? Notice that it arises and notice that it passes away. And then the other things that I read are things in the mental realm, not the material realm. So he says, just notice what arises and passes away. And this is the path to the complete destruction of the taints, the complete liberation. So observing arising and passing away of experience is sufficient for complete liberation. That's what this sutta says in a nutshell. That might get your attention, because it's pretty easy to observe things coming and going. So this is not a really, really obscure, abstruse kind of practice. It's actually very, very mundane, very real world, if we really do it completely. (laughs) We have to do it completely, but it's interesting. So given that change is inevitable, it's our relationship to change that determines our suffering or our freedom. We're not going to escape change. So I want to offer some options. How might we relate to change such that it's not uh, difficult for us or as difficult for us? One option is um, curiosity a sense of possibility. Change is what makes, you know, is what allows things to evolve and develop. If there were no change, your mind could not become purer, become freer, become lighter, become happier. Thank goodness for change. We're not stuck with our mind and our body the way it is. Well, maybe our body in some ways. But not the mind, not the heart very changeable. Once on a retreat I saw a person with a t-shirt that said, impermanence makes everything possible. I appreciated that. I hadn't quite considered it that way, but once I saw it and I was kind of attuned to it, I said, yeah, actually, that's true. Another option is uh, to relate to change with equanimity or wisdom. So there's a chant that's often chanted at funerals in Thailand, returning to the ultimate impermanence that we have. Impermanent truly are compound things by nature arising and passing away. If they arise and are extinguished, their eradication brings happiness. It tricks the mind a little bit, doesn't it, to say impermanent are compound things. That just means anything in the world put together. By their nature they arise and pass away. Their eradication brings happiness. That's a little bit odd translation. There's um. There's another translation of the same phrases. It says, all conditioned things are impermanent. They are of the nature to arise and pass away. 
those who understand this truth deeply will live happily. I think that one's interesting too. Kind of rests in my mind. Those who understand this truth deeply will live happily. It doesn't say might live happily. Uh, it says they will. And so I, I bring that to mind. If I really understood that things arise and pass away, there is a nature to do that. That's a cause of happiness. And I see it sometimes, just realizing, oh yeah, there it goes, there it comes. There's kind of an ease about the naturalness of that. Another teacher points to the poignancy of this by saying, Anicca is heartbreaking, but also freeing. So it's heartbreaking and it brings happiness. I think that's true. Over time I've seen, I've seen that. So wisdom and equanimity help us allow things to come and go by just understanding that that's how it is, including things that are pleasant, including things that are you know, abundant in our lives that may not be forever. Here's a poem from William Blake, actually, coming from the Western tradition. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy, but he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. I think it's interesting. He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. So something that we try to hold on to even if it's a joy or a happiness, we hold on to it, we destroy something. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. There's something about being able to let things go. We don't have to push things away. They're going to go anyway. We can enjoy things while they're here. That's why they're called joys, because we enjoy them. But when it's time for them to go, then we just kiss them goodbye. That's the route to happiness. Now, I'm not saying this is easy. It's not easy. Things that are important to us, things that have really brought us joy, people come and go in our lives. It's not easy. So the question then is, how do we do this practically? And one option is, Mindfulness of the body, actually. Really feeling in our own body the, the feeling of how things are as they come into our life and as they go. After the Buddha died, his cousin and personal attendant, who was named Ananda, he was mourning very deeply. And he loved the Buddha, and he was his attendant for a very long time, many years. So, of course, he was very sad when the Buddha died. And here's some of what he said in a poem. For one whose friend has passed away, one whose teacher is gone for good, there is no friend that can compare with mindfulness of the body. 
I think if it was good enough for Ananda when the Buddha died, it's pretty powerful medicine. So there's curiosity, there's wisdom and equanimity as possible approaches to change. And the third one I'd like to offer is love and self-compassion and compassion. And the fragile nature of existence can evoke in us great love and compassion. I mean, just look around, beings struggle, every being struggles with continual change and even upheaval in their lives. And because we're not totally liberated, this involves suffering. It does. When we're not completely free, then some change, changes where we're attached in some way, they involve suffering. So that means there's a lot of suffering in the world. And we can feel that, and we can begin to take it in what a challenge it is to live. And interestingly, even though things are, of course, continually ceasing, going away, ending, they also continually re-arise. Here we are. Even if we're not doing anything, experience keeps re-arising. In fact, the same things sometimes keep re-arising. You know, do you have patterns in your life where you realize, oh my gosh, I've got the same job I had last time. I've got the same relationship I've had before. Why do I keep getting into this? Why do I keep getting into these things? These habits keep arising. It's the nature of our mind and our body that these patterns exist. And so we're going to have to deal with these same issues again and again. Sorry to say. (laughs) Things change, but sometimes they change in the same way. They keep re-arising in the same way. And this, too, can bring about a softening of the heart. Relaxing into, okay, this again. Here it is again. I can do it again. Here's a quote about this softening up. Usually, we're so caught up in trying to make pleasant experiences arise and stay, or trying to make unpleasant experiences disappear, or we get lost in the details of mental and emotional dramas, that we don't notice the basic characteristic of all experiences and things. They are impermanent. Let the implications of the fact that everything is changing sink deep into your bones. Know in mind, heart, and body. Live that knowing in the choices of life day to day. Let it remind you that this fleeting world is precious, that we have some choices within a world of momentum and constraint, and those choices matter. They lead to suffering and regret, or to freedom and peace. So yeah, things change. And how we relate makes a big difference. 
I want to tell a story about a, an emperor in China, maybe mythological, but nonetheless, this emperor commissioned a painting from the artists in the realm. He wanted a painting of peace. He said, paint peace for me. And so all the artists were required to do this, and they brought their paintings to the palace. And of course, many of the entries had traditionally peaceful scenery, bucolic landscapes and lakes, mountains. But the emperor was not satisfied with any of these. He kept saying, no, 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 that's not quite it, not quite it. So they started having to go farther out to farther away cities and finally way out into the countryside to look for more artists, require them to do this. And they finally found an artist way living out in a remote village in a shack. But the people in the town said, yeah, yeah, he's an artist. So they said, you, you give this a try too. And he brought his painting to the palace. And he set it up with the king and all of his emperor and all of his advisors there. And it was a painting of a torrential waterfall. You could almost hear it coming out of the painting. <sighs> really loud and boisterous and not what you would think of as peace. And all the advisors and retinue of the emperor kind of gasped and said, Oh, what is that? That doesn't look right. And then the emperor looked more carefully the artist said, yeah, look more carefully. And the emperor looked, and over on one side, there was a little gap in the waterfall, and you could see a ledge and a bird's nest with some birds living peacefully in their nest. And the emperor slowly started nodding and said, yes, yes, this is the one, this is the winner because it shows the the reality of the world being like a waterfall ever-changing, rushing forward sometimes even violent and how it brings about change in our lives we can't stop it we're not going to stop a waterfall but we can live peacefully within that there's a little gap a little gap in that and we can make our home in that gap. We don't need to make the waterfall bucolic and perfect if we find that gap. Place where there's peace. And that can carry us, you know, through this difficult changing life sometimes bringing joy, sometimes not, sometimes growing and gaining and strengthening and sometimes falling apart in various ways, declining. I also want to just share a poem that I read at this afternoon's memorial called When Death Comes by Mary Oliver. 
When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? And therefore, I look upon everything as a brotherhood and a sisterhood, and I look upon time as no more than an idea, and I consider eternity as another possibility. And I think of each life as a flower, as common as a field daisy, and as singular. And each name a comfortable music in the mouth, tending, as all music does, towards silence. And each body a lion of courage, and something precious to the earth. When it's over, I want to say, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up simply having visited this world. So here we are. The music outside. <laughs> the music rises during the poetry. And it's great. Things are coming, things are going. And how we dance determines our freedom or our suffering. So thank you. These are my thoughts for tonight on impermanence and setting a course for this year that helps us live with the changes that are surely coming in 2016 for us. There's some time if anyone would like to offer comments or questions, thoughts. right we wish that it would change back in some way right. yeah it's death is a matter of perspective in that sense 
I mean, to the people who are left behind, the person who has died is truly gone. I mean, that is not going to be reversed. There are changes that are permanent, in a sense. Um, from the perspective of the person dying, I don't think we know exactly. It's a change, for sure, and for sure this body is ending. It's no longer going to support that consciousness. You know, and there's, without getting into anything metaphysical, I think it's a different experience for the person dying than for those left behind, and we may not know what kind of change that is. But yeah, change um, doesn't mean necessarily that anything can ever be the same. I think in some sense every moment has been completely different. Has any moment, actually, the conditions of any moment ever completely repeated? Probably not. We've had similar experiences, but every moment is unique. So every moment that goes is a permanent death of that set of conditions. It will never return just like that. So continual change and continual <coughs> permanence of the ending. How to hold that? Nobody can cross a river twice. No one crosses a river twice because they're not the same person and it's not the same river. As it said, that's right. Sometimes we're in this whirlwind of change in motion. One of the things is trying to hold on to something that's firmer. Yeah. It's sort of like a totem or something as it's changing. I mean, this is, um, I think there's something in the spiritual realm that we like because it's, it's, it seems to, you know, to, to, to be stable. The material is changing, but what's something I can hold? Like they say, what can I hold on to that's not Change, change. Yeah, what can I hold? I and mean, when things are changing, it's very helpful to have something that's a reference point like that. And the spiritual, the heart, the spiritual practice, the spiritual life provides better reference points than other ways of, of approaching things. I mean, there are people who hold on to their job or their car or their house or their relationship even as, as their lifeline in a sense. And and then sometimes those turn out not to be such reliable refuges to hold on to. Those can change fairly easily. And, and when they do, the question then is, what's a deeper, you know, more stable thing? And that's for us to discover as we go along, you know, what is a reliable refuge? And maybe over time we refine that. We find more and more reliable ones through deepening of our practice. It's definitely, you know, psychologically and spiritually wise, it can be, to hold on to something when things are changing a lot. You know, you don't need to grasp the idea of impermanence as a life philosophy and say, well, that's it, everything's changing, I'm not going to hold on to anything, everything's free-floating. You know, that may not be the wisest thing for us. I also hear relationships or with people with, um, I can't change, uh, you know, like this, 
You mean sometimes people say, this I can't change? This is who I am. Oh, this is who I am. Uh-huh. And so it's another example of saying, well, change is, you know, change it. I think we resist it. In some ways we resist change. So we say, we're so scared of the change. So we say, no, I'm, I'm not. I, this is who I am. I, I can't, I don't change my characteristics and my personality. You know, yeah. especially relationships when there's two people who are opposite. You know, you say, this is my views and this is what I hold. In philosophy, it's about holding, right? You hold on to belief. And this is who I am. And it's sort of like trying to put it down. You know, on, on things. Yeah, if we're not able to hold the the experience of, of change or of conflict or something, then we may try, and we're not able to be with that and just let it unfold. Then we may try to hold on to something. So this is a little bit like your previous comment, and you've suggested that people hold on to ideas of themselves. For example, I'm like this, this is how I am, I can't change. Or they hold on to a view, a philosophy. These are actually two of the four things that are considered unwise to hold on to. I'll give you that list since I've referred to it now. So the four things we cling to unwisely are material, um, sense pleasure, essentially material comfort, um, rites and rituals, so ways of doing things, you know, the ritual you do to make your coffee in the morning. You can, people can really cling to their little habits of ways of doing things. Uh, views, so philosophies, ideas, theories, abstract, abstractions. And then the fourth is uh, views of ourself kind of a subset of views, but it's so important we pull it out, you know, I'm like this, I can't change, this is my personality. One concussion in your personality can change. <laughs> so we're told, just not to leave you with the unwise things, to try to make a foundation of, um, there's three that are considered more reliable. Nominally, they're called Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. But you know, what they mean for us, we work out for ourselves. But essentially, their awareness, mindfulness, you know, the, that attention that we bring to things, that we can rely on, the ability to see. And then you know, the Dharma, the teachings, so the understanding, yes, things change, <laughs> even my personality, even my views, that... Um, that touching into the, the teachings that the Buddha pointed to. And then the Sangha, other people who are also practicing the path that we're on are considered a reliable refuge if they also have an understanding of the teachings. These are not ultimate refuges, um, but they're better than what we would normally habitually choose. And so we use them on the path in order to lead to freedom, which is the best refuge. So how about that? That was a whole summary of the path. (laughs) Um, But yeah, very, very important point that you're bringing up of what do we rely on, given the truth of continual change. So I offer Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha something to reflect on as moving toward that as a better refuge in, in our life. Something I thought I saw you. Uh, yeah, I, uh, something that was sort of in the mind was kind of uh, the idea that 
um, impermanence is an opportunity to uh, cultivate compassion mm-hmm. and loving kindness uh, toward yourself and other people. And, um, you know, just through, through contemplating, you know, that exercise and, and, and really, like, in the snap of the finger type of way, seeing how there's all these things in every moment that are arising and subsiding, and, and then, you know, in more general things like relationships and those kind of things, you know, and, and, and seeing how, you know, there's suffering that can be, that can be had through that, um, by yeah. attachment and clinging and, and, and then through that understanding, cultivating compassion, um, to, to really better relate with ourselves, you know, as, as we're arising and, 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 and also other people and acting in a way that causes the least suffering uh, for ourselves and others. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, by understanding that there's this continual change and that we will suffer if we cling to it, can really soften and open the heart and help us be motivated to act in ways that are not going to stress other people out and not going to bring more suffering into the world. Yeah. Thank you. A mantra I've saying to myself for like the last month or so, and uh-huh. it goes impermanence is natural, all things pass. You just walk around saying that to myself, mm. and it's a way for me. What it does is it actually in the day to day life of things, material things coming and going, emotions, thoughts, and feelings coming and going. It's a way to recognize that and then just watch those things come and go and not get caught up in the samsara of life and stay disconnected and just watch things come and go and not get taken up in all the the drama. And and it's a way to stay centered and balanced and focused in the the chaos, the waterfall of life. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's the wisdom and equanimity response. Yes, and and, uh, so if there's anything one might cling to and hold on to as a solid uh, cornerstone in this universe, it's the idea of impermanence and change and having that understanding always with you. Yeah, so that's part of the refuge of the Dharma, is to carry that understanding. In the end, of course, the idea of impermanence will also have to go. (laughs) But as an idea, it's a pretty good one. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, everyone. One more? Or no? I was. I have the image of waterfall in, uh, in regards to uh, emotions that get stuck, and I, the idea of the waterfall can be actually peaceful because when emotions are stuck, it's that's suffering too. And I think when emotions can be released, like the pain of someone dying. We tend to hold, like we, we're in shock, and we hold it. Yeah. And it's only until that waterfall of emotions gushes out yeah, and it starts to flow. Yeah. So, so 
you can think of stillness as peaceful, but really sometimes having the waterfall come out is really, really of an emotional sense at least. Uh, it's liberating. Yeah. Change itself can be liberating by if it's a loosening up of something that was stuck. Absolutely. All right, great. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.